You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Have your Bibles, you can open them up uh, to Nehemiah chapter 11. If I get my little whiteboard thing here. So, um, Nehemiah chapter 11. And if you're new and you're joining us, Nehemiah, it's an Old Testament book. This is after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is after the kings and, and God has brought his people out of Exodus and, and given them this land. And it's so far after that that they had kind of forgotten about God and um, have since kind of turned from him and have been conquered by a foreign land and a foreign people. And in that conquering process, they destroyed uh, Jerusalem. They destroyed the, the walls of the city, and this was like the, the chief city that God had kind of given them and set them apart as his people. And so they toppled the walls, uh, likely interior, you know, just continued the destruction. And so God lays it on Nehemiah's heart some 140 plus years after the destruction to go back and to ask the king who is still ruling over them as a conquered people, ask him if he can have, you know, a couple of 12 years, I think, vacation and that he would fund the process of rebuilding the walls. And so he's going back, and, uh, and so we see in chapter 6 that the walls kind of get rebuilt, and then from there the people repent of past sins, the very thing that, that caused the downfall and destruction. They repent of the sin of their forefathers, recognize that own tendency in their own heart, and responded with just worship and rejoicing. But again, the work wasn't done when the walls got rebuilt. Here we are chapters later, and there's a part of a, a bigger story. And so I want to share with you as we're getting ready to, to dive into Nehemiah chapter 11, I'm kind of adapting this from a secular author and, and speaker, um, this idea of there's the what, the how, and the why. And so far, what we've been seeing is just what? Walls are being rebuilt. Uh, people are, are singing. They're praying, repenting. That's all what? We've we're been talking about the what. And even how the walls got rebuilt. But we still have yet to really, I think, hone in on the, the why. Does that make sense? So today we want to talk about why. Why all this trouble? Why is this significant and I would ask, that's their town we need to ask the why. But here's my question to you is, why are you here? Like, why are you coming to Anthem Church? Where you're like, hey, I had a family member dedicating a baby, so that's why I'm here. Okay, so you got an explanation. But, but for those that, are, that you live around here and you're coming to church at Anthem, my question is, at the, the core, Why? That makes sense? And you'd be like, well, you know, the, the worship is, is, is pretty good, right? I, I like that guy on the keyboard. He's kind of does his thing. Like, but that's a what? The fact that the coffee is free. Now, wasn't always, we didn't always have coffee, but some coffee drinkers like, we need to get some coffee. I agree now. Um, but that, but that's, a, that's a what? Uh, you know, maybe it's close or maybe you had friends. But at the core, and I think of people that moved from Iowa, people that relocated, trying to get jobs, people that, that perhaps joined us when we got here. I, I ask, why at the core? 
Why do you give generously? Why are you serving? Why in this context? We're gonna look at that today is, I believe Nehemiah takes us there. And so we're gonna move beyond the what and get to the why. And so Nehemiah chapter 11 says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. There's the reference that our missions friend was talking about. So they cast lots, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priest, the Levites, the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, now the sons of Judah. And he's, he's gonna go on throughout chapter 11 to just start listing them by name. These are the people that lived in Jerusalem. And at the end of verse six, we see from the first tribe of the sons of Perez, we see 468 valiant men went from their towns to live in Jerusalem. It's gonna continue, and it's just more the same throughout, really, all of chapter 11. And again, you have to remember that Nehemiah is writing this down in what would have been more of like a personal journal. And he's writing this down, and he's saying, here's all these people that were in Jerusalem that moved to kind of reestablish the city. And he's gonna go on to say how they served they served in these ways. So you see in, in verse one, there's leaders of the people. Verse three, they're chiefs of the province. In verse nine, overseers. In 11, we didn't read this, but you continued like rulers of the house of God. Verse 16, chiefs of the Levites, chiefs of the priest. There's leaders of praise in verse 17. In chapter 12, verse eight, there was those who were in charge of songs of thanksgiving. And it's this idea, if you're taking notes, that, that God's people will serve people. And so they're coming back for this very specific purpose of serving people. And so to live in the city, again, would have been sacrificial and brave. And, and that's why Nehemiah is recording it because it would not have been much of a city. I mean, you imagine what they did to the exterior walls. You can imagine like what the city itself would have looked like. And sometimes in war, they would say, you know, when a an opposing army destroys something, it's like to the extent where not a stone was left unturned. They just take it and just topple, pillage, burn, tear up everything. And so they just fix the walls and set the gates, but you walk inside and it probably still looked pretty rough. Thus, Nehemiah is saying, it was a valiant thing that they would do this. It was a, a brave thing for them to take this on. Because again, they were leaving established homes, perhaps vineyards in, in these villages. They would have had a nice life. And it records those that were willingly left and those that uh, were chosen were valiant. So valuable that Nehemiah is recording this. And he's recording them, again, by name. You start reading some of the names. Oh, I skipped them. They're a little bit complicated. But nonetheless, he's recalling them as a leader of all these people. He sees it significant enough to write down their name and write down the number. It was not just some frivolous thing. It meant something to Nehemiah that they were willing to move to the city as God's people to serve people. 
And here's the thing. You, you need to understand, Anthem Church, there is something much bigger at the core that is going on here. You got to understand, in the context of Scripture, some 1,640-odd years prior to this, that in this land, there was an old man walking with his barren wife, and God said to that old man, who had no son of his own, that one day you will inherit this land and your descendants will be as numerous as sands on the seashore. And God was faithful to that promise to Abraham. That was 1,600 and some odd years prior to this that God said, you will be my chosen people. And what we see happening here is God has not forgotten that promise to Abraham his commitment to bless them and to make his name great through them. This is Jerusalem. This would have been the epicenter of, of God's people. The very thing that when people thought of God's people, the nation that's set apart, you would think Jerusalem. And here we are in Nehemiah, some 1,600 years after that original promise to Abraham, which again, the, the craziness of God choosing the least likely to be the one that the descendants would be brought through. God's doing something. And guys, it doesn't stop there. They're rebuilding the walls that some 450 years later, it's inside those walls that Jesus Christ would stand trial. And that he'd be taken outside of these walls that were being rebuilt some 450 years later. And outside these walls, on a hill, Jesus Christ would be crucified. Do you understand that this is so much bigger than this little point in time that we see in Scripture? God is doing something so much bigger, and he's using people, valiant people, to accomplish his purpose. And he's doing that because they are willing to serve. I don't have to think very hard of what that looks like in our town. In fact, again, we're a young church, just over a year old. And uh, to think of people who would leave jobs, leave, transfer schools, sell property, to up and to move. And again, motivated to want to serve people. And so I've actually got a picture of like some of our core team that was taken a year and a half ago-ish at Christmas. That's Austin in the middle with a broken nose. He just had surgery. That's the big white thing. But you start to see some of the people Again, with the heart to want to reach the next generation. I think, of, I think if she's not in that picture, she's part of the team, uh, a gal, McKenna Farron, who just a couple years prior to moving here lost her dad of cancer. She had already moved once to help us start a church in Cedar Falls that is now vibrant and just taking off. And McKenna, once she heard that we were going to do something, despite being at a new school, said, I'm willing, and would pack up and move and pay out-of-state tuition. Again, why? The desire to, to, to help people know the gospel and to share that. I think of, you know, some of the families, again, not pictured at this point because he wasn't committed yet. It's got Todd Van Vorst and Paige that were up here. This is taken in Rachel and Joel's house. They moved not once, but twice. They moved for the, the, the last church plant 
and they were willing to do it again. I think of the, the Durkies that are in there, the Wards, I'm Nick Serene, who helps us out with worship. I mean, just the team of people. Anna and Allie, a couple of single gals who were just graduating school that said, we'd be, they were the first ones that were like, we're willing to go. <laughs> Man, and how God just, they were some of the first to step out and how God just continued to build that team to roughly 30 strong. And then it wasn't just the team that was, God was kind of amassing from around Iowa to be about it, but who he gave us as soon as we got here. I think we're moving to town the same time that Zach and Maren Fleer were moving to town. I don't know the random, coincidental with the capital G things that happened where God was so in charge of, of intersecting their lives with ours, and now you're gonna get to see Zach up here baptizing some people that God has allowed him to have a relationship with. I think of Todd and Zoe Prevet, the Kings, the Casey's, God adding to our number. And again, it's people that are willing to serve, recognizing that Jesus Christ in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so this idea that we look here and we see that, that God's people are gonna serve people. For them, it meant leaving wherever it was in their village, their vineyard, all that stuff, to move to Jerusalem and resettle a kind of a toppled city and to serve people in a variety of different ways. And in our town, man, if I kept a journal, <laughs> it'd have the names of the people that helped make up the core of Anthem. And thinking how noble and right it is to honor people that would be willing. And it just comes from the reality, again, the understanding that God has already done what he's asking us to do. What would prevent us from serving people? What would prevent us from prayerfully considering if we should enter into the mission field on foreign soil? What would prayerfully prevent us from considering that? I think a couple of things are the death of that Christ-like service, passivity, and selfishness. Passivity results in not serving. It just keeps you from, from putting yourself out there, and so passivity is the death of Christ-like service, and selfishness, because you're too busy serving yourself to serve others. The call from Philippians 2, 3, and 4 is that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as Christ. So the scripture is compelling us to, to follow the model of Jesus. And so they paid a great cost to resettle the city. And again, I, I see that in our day. But here's the other thing that's implied in this text. The God's people are called to serve people, which we've seen in the text and we see today, but that might mean specific places. Again, they cast lots. Now, I brought up some dice. I, don't ask me why I carry dice around. But for them, casting lots, Proverbs 16.33 says, the, lot is, uh, the, the die is cast in the lot and every outcome comes from the Lord. And he still casts lots to make decisions. It's fun. That's how I married my wife. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. But, but it's this recognition that God is so sovereign that it, it, he can tip these things to determine even that outcome 
you know, and, and make a right decision. And so they cast lots. I don't know how that worked, 10 sided die, or what that looked like, but they would just throw it down. And then that was how they determined a number. There were some that were willing, and then some that just cast lots. And that's how they made the decision. And again, it's the recognition that, that some needed to move to the city and resettle that, which would have been the epicenter. Again, what's gonna be happening afterwards? And then some were gonna stay out there and, and continue to work in these villages, work the vineyards. And it's this reality that you need both kinds of kinds, right? Because while it's fun to joke, if, if every person who loved Jesus and believed in Jesus left this church, in fact, let's just say across America, there's just a resurgence of like, you know what? Everybody loves Jesus and needs to just go and tell people about Jesus. So all the believers get up and move. <laughs> Not in rocket science to figure out what happens, right? Like, well, who's going to tell those here that don't know Jesus? Right? And, and if everybody stays, well, who's going to go? And so you need both kinds of kinds. And again, the emphasis that we're going to see that Jesus puts on it in Matthew 28 is that Jesus came to his disciples and he says, how do you, how do you manage this tension? In 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. When you hear that, oftentimes referred to as the Great Commission, the imperative command is that you would make disciples. That's what he's calling you to do is, is to make disciples. Now, for some that might mean going, for some that might be staying, but if you're making disciples, you're being obedient to what God has called you to do. And so again, the emphasis, sometimes people say, well, that means just go. The, the emphasis is on go. I think as some foreign missionaries could testify to, <laughs> If you're not making disciples here in this context, getting on an airplane won't somehow magically change that. And what we don't need, and forgive the descriptor, is more Christian buttheads moving overseas, drinking coffee, hanging out while people around them die every 10 minutes going to hell. You need disciple makers. That's the imperative command, is that we would make disciples Secondarily, yeah, sure, let's talk about where and how to do that. Again, that's not the, the emphasis of the text, but it's still worth considering and asking, where is the most strategic place for us to actually make disciples? What does that mean for our, our job? Where should we choose to, to work? What career fields should we be in? Where should we get a job? What does that look like? Those are things that are worth praying about in asking and trying to be strategic. Because again, guys, we are closer to the return of Jesus, him coming back today, than we were yesterday. <laughs> Jesus is closer to coming back. Or minimally, you would agree that you're closer to going to meet with him, right? <laughs> Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This idea that our time is limited before either Jesus returns or we go to meet him. 
The time is limited. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day. And so how do we be as strategic as possible? James would say your life is just but a mist here today, gone tomorrow. And so with that little bit of mist, how do you be as strategic as possible? I forget what missionary said. The only regret I have in life is that I only have one life to give. I mean, your life is short. And so it's this reality is, is what you're living for. Worth Jesus dying for. How do you be strategic? Because time on earth is, is short, so how do you be as strategic as possible? How do we prayerfully consider that? But again, we see from the text in, in 11 and 12, again, we're keeping it short because we got something fun to kind of end this, is, is that God's people are gonna serve and they're gonna do it in places. That's what we see happening here in Nehemiah. But again, that's just kind of what? I guess we still have to answer the, the motivation as, as why. Why? And I think the thing that they understood, and certainly I would want us to understand, is why? Why move and pay out-of-state tuition? Why come and be a part of a church that wants you to be more than a tender, but to be actively making disciples? Why give sacrificially? Why go hard? Why not just have just a little, just enough Jesus, you know, to get by? Why? Why? Because there's a God in heaven who lovingly created you, who is over all things, and who sent his son Jesus to die, to bring us back from death, to, to, to save us from the hell that we so deserve, that God in heaven is there, and he would want us to glorify him. The why is, it, is deeply motivated by the good news of the gospel. And so I guess the question is, why? Why anthem? If you don't know the answer to that, because again, what happens is kind of, they say vision leaks. It's like a bucket, you know, with a hole in it. Like you have some vision originally, and then if you just don't keep filling it, it just kind of leaks out. You're like, why am I here again? And that's some people, maybe it's McKenna, you know, I'm not saying she's like this, but you see that you bill, you know, you're like, why did I move again? Because this is expensive, the out-of-state tuition. Like, why? Because here's the thing, guys. We want to be a church that helps people know, love, and obey Jesus. That's what we want to be about. And we believe that that is done through making disciples that make disciples, being obedient to what Jesus said there in Matthew 28. The why, why do we all this? It's because you're going to get to hear from some people today. The because of the faithfulness of God's people, God's plan A for the gospel going forth is people. You're going to get to hear stories today that people have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. That they're once destined to spend an eternity apart from God. But because of the good news of the gospel, they've put their trust in Jesus. This is why, as a church, we are here. And you get, you, it culminates today in the story of baptism as people get to publicly declare 
My trust is in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And so just to clarify, like this is just some tap water. In fact, we overfilled this and then dumped some out and probably needed to put some back in. It's just tap water from right back there. There's nothing magical about Columbia water, I promise you, right? (laughs) This is not gonna wash away anybody's sin. But it's to publicly display that our trust is in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In the same way that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, his blood was shed for us. In the way that he was placed in a tomb for three days, and then after that, he rose. His death, he defeated sin, and so he, he took away our sin, but the fact that he rose gives us hope of new life. And so this is the symbolic way that we say our trust is in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Again, we're not gonna hold them under there for three days or three hours or anything like that. We're just gonna put them under there and bring them up. And guys, it is, this is why, as a church, we wanna exist. This is why we wanna invite you in to making disciples. Because again, one thing we're not gonna be able to do in heaven is share the good news of God's love as displayed through his son with unbelievers. Everybody in heaven is gonna believe. And so on this side of eternity, why we do it is to help people come to know God.